All right. Welcome back to Journalistic Integrity. It is Thursday, March 3rd, and we're just a few days away from conference tournament, March Madness right around the corner. I know we say this a lot, but this is we're on the precipice of some of the best weeks of the sports calendar. So pumped up for that. Today's agenda going to start with some college basketball, focus on the ACC, do a little bit on broadcasting. Troy Aikman leaving Fox after like 20 years for ESPN and Monday Night Football. And they're going to end with the MLB, obviously in a lockout right now, missing the first two series of the year. And I've got a couple questions, a couple takes around that. But let's start with college basketball and my Virginia Cavaliers get upset at home by Florida State, effectively ending the Virginia Cavaliers' chances of an NCAA tournament bid unless they win the ACC tournament. But it was one of those games, UVA's up to Armand Franklin hits uh, a jumper on a fast break, go up to with about a second left. I send the text messages out to all my UVA basketball friends like, hey, we won this game, we beat Louisville, we just, you know, maybe we beat Clemson and then a Notre Dame or UNC and we're in the NCAA tournament. And then Matthew Cleveland happened. It was kind of it was his coming out party. He's a high-rated recruit coming out of high school. He's kind of reminds me of like an, a less polished version of Scotty Barnes, one of these long guards, long arms, good defender, can get in the paint, make shots, decent shooter. And so a second left, basically he runs like an out route about five yards outside of the half court line, catches it, turns around, swishes, nothing but net. Like it barely hit the net. It was a really good shot. It wasn't one of those like, lucky bank shots, but what I wanted to focus on was the defense UVA played. And so FSU obviously has a guy inbounding the ball. Then they have another guy right next to that guy who's setting a screen on Shedrick to free him up so the inbounder doesn't have to throw it over a seven-footer, seven-five with the wingspan. And so they've got two guys back there, and then they've got three guys on the UVA side of the court. UVA has Shedrick guarding the inbounder, but they bring another guy to guard the screener. Okay, and my problem with that is you're wasting a player. The screener is not going to, you know, catch the ball at like the free throw line of the Florida State side and then shoot like an 85 footer. If that happens, if he makes an open 85 footer, then that's okay. What UVA should have done, and this is on Tony Bennett, is move that defender back to the half court line and he plays free safety. And if his man starts leaking going forward, you can pick him up there. But if we lose on a, you know, 6'8", forward, chucking a shot that he's never shot in his life before, that's okay. What we can't give up is a look, a somewhat open look to their best player on the court, and that was Matthew Cleveland. If we have that defender, that extra defender playing free safety at the 50, he's reading the ball, wherever the ball's thrown, he runs over, he's got time to pick up Cleveland right around the half court line, maybe even double Cleveland so he doesn't get it, and you've got to you know, throw deep to one of your big men inside the three-point line or live with a worse player making one of those shots because they don't have that many big-time shot makers except for Cleveland, and I thought it was a really poor coaching job by Tony Bennett. Normally good, but I thought this was really bad, and it lost them a game, and that, it just, I talk about this all the time in football. These little decisions can come back to bite you, these little details. Tony, normally really good at it, um, but this was bad. I'm not sure what Franklin was doing Uh Cleveland somehow caught it without a screen with like three yards of space between him and Franklin, the closest defender, turns around, makes a really good shot. And it was one of those things, after he made the shot, 
as a sports fan, it's like the worst like two, three seconds. You just start scanning like anything on the court to be like, okay, this doesn't count. Like whether the buzzer went off before the shot, whether there's some foul, whether he traveled, you just start making excuses in your mind. Like maybe this didn't count. It's just like in football when there's like a long run, you're like against your team, you're scanning the field, anything yellow. Was there a flag? Was there a holding? And there wasn't. And he got it off in time. And UVA's tournament, chances are all but gone. They've got to win the ACC tournament. Um, right now, Lenardi has them like eight teams ahead of them. So there's the first four out, the next four out, and then UVA's first on the remaining teams left. So they got to jump nine teams. So the only remaining hope is to win the ACC tournament. And actually, this same play, the half-court shot, played out in Richmond versus Dayton a couple days later. So Richmond is down to, they run the same exact play as Florida State. They run that out route to left. This time, Dayton does exactly what I just explained. UVA did not do. They play an extra guy back, kind of roaming, playing free safety, running wherever the ball is. They're able to kind of like double him right when he catches it. He doesn't get a shot off. I thought he got fouled. But regardless, it worked out for Dayton. And I thought Tony Bennett lost that one for the Cavs. But let's stay in the ACC. And a quick note of just kind of ACC basketball in general. Right now, it looks like the ACC is going to get about five teams in, it seems like. So we've got Wake Forest, UNC, Duke, Notre Dame, and then probably either one of Virginia Tech or Miami. And then if somebody wins an automatic bid, winning the ACC tournament. But the ACC has been down this year and just kind of in general over the past five, 10 years, not as strong. UNC has been really weak the past decade. And I was looking at, you know, the difference between the ACC and SEC because the SEC is getting like eight teams in. And it just like like four or five years ago, just kind of switched out of nowhere. Because if you remember, you know, like five, 10 years ago, the SEC was basically just like a two or three team uh, bids from that conference. It was a like the Kentucky, Florida, and then maybe like a Missouri here and there, like an Ole Miss every once in a while. South Carolina had that run with uh, Sundarius Thornwell a few years ago. And now it's SEC's getting eight teams in. ACC's battling to get five teams in. And historically, the ACC has just been so good. So since 1985, the ACC has the best win percentage in the NCAA tournament, 318 and 162. So that's 66%. SEC is 231 and 151 at 60%. So ACC has historically been one of the premier conferences in college basketball. Duke going on their runs, UNC, Florida State, you know, Miami, Virginia. But all of a sudden, like five years ago, just kind of switched. And these SEC teams were getting all these players that you would think like a UNC would get. Like Arkansas has got these athletic, like 6'5", 6'6", guys run all over. Auburn with Jabari Smith, these quick guards that – you, know, you used to see these type of players in the ACC at Duke, um, but the SEC is good. I mean, Kentucky, obviously, this is the oldest Kentucky team we've seen, I think, under Calipari, a bunch of transfers, older guys, and, and they're really good, but it's just been crazy how, how quickly it's changed from the ACC to the SEC as one of the top conferences. Um, but let's finish college basketball on Duke. I want to talk about Duke for just a minute or two. Duke has officially won the regular season title outright in the ACC for the first time since Greg Paulus was a freshman since 2006. It's been 16 years, but Duke is back atop of the ACC. Here's my take on Duke. I don't think they're a Final Four team. Actually, they're not a Final Four team, and I think they could lose much sooner. I think they could lose 
uh, in the first week into if they get a one seed, lose to an eight seed, two seed, lose to you know a seven or ten seed, something like that. But here's why: a couple different reasons. Number one, Paulo Bancaro has not gotten better over the season. Uh, Jaden Gardner has locked him down twice for Virginia, and he's just like he's got the size, he can handle, he can shoot. Everything looks good. But there's a like a measure of offensive skills that seems to be missing. Like when he's got a smaller guy on him, he doesn't quite have that skill set to make him pay for it, to back him down, get physical in the in the paint or a smaller guy. He's settling for these long twos. It just hasn't quite pieced together. And when you look at the other top prospects this year, uh, Jabari Smith for Auburn, Jaden Ivey for Purdue, uh, the tall skinny dude for Gonzaga. I'm blanking on his name right now. I can't believe I am, but. I cannot quite pull it out of my brain. Chet Holmgren. All of those guys have gotten better as the season has gone. Much better throughout the season. Bancaro, it seems like he started off hot and then he just kind of plateaued. Where Other teams have seen the best way to defend him and he hasn't been able to adjust. And Duke's offense in general is just kind of like space out, drive, kick. Not, you know, the Duke offense is not doing him any, any help getting him in the right spots. But... You know, the bigger reason for Duke not making a run and getting upset early is their defense. You know, I've seen NC State, I've seen Clemson, I've seen these lower tier ACC teams be able to score against this Duke team pretty easily. And they've got all these great athletes, but all it takes for a team to to give Duke fits is a point guard, a good point guard who can drive and make good decisions. So whether it's driving in the paint and scoring or kicking out, because Duke is not a great on-ball defender. You know, sometimes they'll have stretches where they really lock in. But for the most part, especially on-ball, you can drive past them. And it comes down to making the right decision as a point guard and then having a couple guards that can knock down threes. You got to knock down some threes, right? The defense collapses, you kick out. And then the last piece is a center that is like adequate or functional, coordinated around the rim. So we saw this. UVA Duke, the second time they played, Kafaro missed like three or four really close bunnies after, you know, Kihei Clark, Reese Beekman, Armand Franklin, after they drive into the paint, it brings over Mark Williams, great defender. And then you've got, you know, a quick toss to the center down low, Kafaro Shedrick. And Kafaro just wasn't able to finish. He wasn't going strong enough. He wasn't quick enough, right? So right when Mark Williams comes up, you got to catch it and go up to the rim real quick or do a pump fake, get a foul. Kafaro was not skilled enough for UVA, and those shots, uh, those missed shots ended up being really big. And it's not easy with Mark Williams coming back down, but you've got to have a, an adequate big man. So I think, you know, Duke is going to face a team in the tournament with one of those quick point guards that can penetrate, and then they start hitting some threes, and you've got a big man, maybe get Mark Williams in foul trouble. That's the recipe to beat Duke. And the X factor is A.J. Griffin. So, Bancaro's kind of leveled out. A.J. Griffin, the arrow, has been pointing up. He's now cracked the top five in NBA prospects um, or draft uh, mock drafts for this season. He's gotten a lot better. He reminds me of Jimmy Butler. He can drive. He's got these long strides. He's got these long limbs. He's able to shoot. He won Duke that same UVA game, had like 10 points in the last couple minutes of the game and really closed out UVA. But he's a really good scorer. Everything looks really fluid with him, whether it's driving in the paint, comfortable with contact, catch and shoot, shooting off the dribble. It all looks really natural, and I really like him. So if he can step up and be big, Maybe they can make a run, but I just don't trust a team that, that doesn't play defense, and that's Duke right now, and I don't see them turning it around uh, these last couple games. 
Okay, quickly on the broadcasting front, Troy Aikman, who's been a staple of Fox NFL, leaves after about 20 years to go to ESPN, sure up that Monday night football booth. Not a great look for Fox losing you know, a top analyst to ESPN. ESPN had to make a move. So the past five years, ever since Gruden left, the, the booth has been pretty pretty subpar. Tessator, the Jason Witten experience, Booger on his little Booger mobile. And then we had uh, two years of Levy, Greasy, and Riddick. And I don't love you know poking holes in, in broadcasters because they're talking for three and a half hours. People are going to make mistakes. But the past couple years have been pretty bad. And it's not just those mistakes that you'll see like on social media where they thought a field goal went in and they called a field goal good and it was like 10 yards short. It's not just that. It's one, it never felt like a big game, right? So Levy, like 18 months before Monday Night Football was calling like one of those spring football league games, right? And so you'd never hear Joe Buck or Al Michaels or any of those top broadcasters. Like it really does make a difference when you hear a voice, you know it's a big game. So when you heard Levy, it was these football games that nobody cared about. Now he's all of a sudden on Monday Night Football. Didn't make any sense to me. Number two, the chemistry is off. Nobody knew when to talk. And it's tough with a three-man booth. Two-man booths are like 95% of the time better. And it just felt awkward. And when you're watching a game, you never want to hold your breath like, man, this is really uncomfortable listening to these guys. They have no chemistry. So, you know, I thought Riddick had a couple good stretches where he's doing really good, like detailed, in-depth football stuff. But then apparently ESPN doesn't like that because they're supposed to cater to like the average, you know, football fan. They've got, you know, 20 million people. It's not catered to like the hardcore football fan like a Sunday afternoon game might be especially when it gets moved to ABC for a few of these games and so the question is is Joe Buck gonna join his longtime partner Troy Aikman I think he's got one year left 12 million but Joe Buck really loves baseball he loves doing the playoffs loves doing the World Series he's been with Fox you know calling playoff games since like his late 20s and so you know there's also Al Michaels on the block And this is really a golden period for these guys, announcers, to cash in because they've got Amazon who is looking to fill their booth. And so that's a great bargaining chip for these broadcasters to be like, hey, Amazon's paying me 15 million. I need at least 17 million. I don't think Buck leaves. I think he likes doing the baseball too much. Al Michaels, I don't know. I don't think he goes. So ESPN has a Super Bowl in 2026. Al Michaels is like 80 years old. So I'm not sure if... You know, he seems more like a two or three year plan. And so I think ESPN probably wants their booth settled. They got Aikman for five or six years. So they probably want a guy that's going to be with him for that duration through the Super Bowl. And so it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I think Al Michaels goes to Amazon for two years, gets that kick started. And that's my guess. And then so the big gap is, or the remaining spot is who's going to fill in for Troy Aikman on Fox? Is it going to be Greg Olson, who just has one year experience? I thought he was pretty good this past year, but not great. And that's a really big spot. The, the, the Sunday 425 Fox game is the biggest slot on Sunday. It's always got the Cowboys games, the big NFC games. And so I'm sure Fox is frantically searching to try and fill that spot. But that's it for broadcasting. Now let's move to the last subject, and that is the... MLB on Tuesday afternoon officially canceled the first two series of the season, which began on March 31st. I was like, I did not remember baseball starting end of March. I thought it was more like first or second week in April. 
But those first two series are canceled after the two sides could not come to an agreement on the CBA. And here's my biggest qualm with the coverage of this. Twitter has ruined like journalism, like real journalism. And so all of the journalists are all pro players, which I'm probably pro players too. But can we not get somebody that's objective, that's like laying out, hey, here's where the owners probably need to give. Here's where the players need to give. Here's where they are being greedy on this side, greedy on the other side. Instead, it was just people tweeting like, Robert Manfraud or OMG, Max Scherzer is my spirit animal. Max Scherzer looks like me when they get my Starbucks order wrong. And I was like, can somebody, and maybe I should have done it, but could somebody just like lay out the facts of what's going on? It was impossible to find. People were just like thirsting over the player's tweets. I was like, can somebody actually lay it out? So the, the big three things to me that they were talking about was expanded playoffs. So the, the owners want 14 because those are higher rated games, ticket prices skyrocket. And guess what? It's like half the league makes it. So half the owners are like, man, we're going to get this extra revenue. Players are like, okay, we need to keep it at most at 12. I side with the players on this. If you're playing 162 games, then you have to have a smaller playoff pot or else these games stop mattering. If you have half the league in, then these random games don't really matter. These teams don't have to go all in because guess what? They're probably going to make the playoffs anyway if they're 500. Second thing was the arbitration pool for like young players. I think it's like the young players that are like way out outperforming their contract and they're supposed to get some slice of a pie. The players obviously want that pie much larger. Owners want to keep it as small as possible. Then the third thing is the um, like tax level. And so the players want this large um Ability to spend until you hit this tax threshold. So a larger tax threshold, that means teams can spend more, kind of obligated to spend more, um, you know, de facto type salary cap. The owners want it lower. So those are the three big things. And so the first two series are gone. So that's three, I think that it's like six games. So that's about three and a half percent of the season. So the players aren't getting paid for any of that. Uh, so they get three and a half percent less from their salary and the owners don't care. So here's a tidbit that I just realized about the owners. So they don't care about losing the first two series because apparently they can still fulfill their contract if they miss six games. So apparently these TV contracts have like a little buffer period or little thing where if like a certain amount of games get rained out, something happens, you can still fulfill the entirety of your TV contract and get paid all that. So I think that was part of the reason why it was just two series because these owners are not missing out on any of that TV revenue. And here's an un kind of foreseen consequence. Um, so Mike Trout, one of the best players of all time, like ever since he was 22 years old, I mean, he's hitting 30 home runs, hitting 310, you know, 100 plus RBIs every single season. The past two seasons, he has played... 90 games out of, in a normal situation, 320, okay? And so part of that last year, he injured his calf and he missed 100 games. But before that, the season was only 60 games long. And now this season, we're missing games already. And Mike Trout is chasing a lot of big landmarks, you know, trying to get to 3,000 hits, trying to get to, you know, 500, 600 home runs. A lot of these big landmarks and what baseball is kind of built on is all these big records, you know, part of the 500 club, 600 home runs, Barry Bonds, home run, Willie Mays, you know, 3,000 hits. And COVID coupled with a calf injury, coupled with now being locked out, Mike Trout in the middle of his prime is missing so many opportunities to add to these 
uh, potential milestones and really cement himself as one of the best players of all time that we've all get to see during his prime. And it just stinks because we haven't seen a player like this in a long time. And he's got a real chance of taking down a lot of these records and cementing himself as one of the best, you know, top two, top three players ever. And now right in his prime, uh, you know, the lockout, the injury, COVID, and it just, that stinks um, for him and for the fans. But I think overall, the whole lockout thing, I think it's a little dramatic. People are like, this is the end of baseball. I don't think delaying the season by a week and a half is hurting baseball. I think the three and a half hour long games are delaying baseball. I think players stepping out of the box and taking like 10 seconds in between pitches is hurting baseball. I think all the coaching mound visits. Baseball, like there should be no mound visits unless you're taking a pitcher out. Leave them out there. When a player's taking a free throw, you don't have a coach walking out there and be like, hey man, you got this, you got this. In football, you don't have a coach walking out and be like, hey guys, you got this. The timeouts, I mean, you're going back to the dugout in between innings. Maybe one mound visit per game, but I think there should be some sort of pitch clock. Everything needs to be quickened. These games need to be like two hours, 45 minutes. I think it is a good spot for MLB, but I don't think the lockout, I think everyone's being dramatic. This is you know really going to hurt baseball. If you like baseball, you're going to watch it, whether it starts March 31st or April 10th. That's it for today's podcast. It's going to be all college basketball going forward as we get into the conference tournaments. NCAA tournament, going to have some good you know, college basketball guests on, go over some stuff. Bracketologist, maybe we'll get John back in. He's still uh, digging into the, into the weeds and, and the bracketology just like he did last year. Get Reed back on and some other former players so excited for the upcoming episodes thank you everybody for listening and have a good rest of your week see ya